All right, I think we're going. Uh, welcome, everyone, to a special edition of Legal Faceoff on WGN. Of course, we're dealing with the question of will Roe be overturned in the wake of the uh, leaking of a draft Justice Alito decision late yesterday. We've got an all-star panel discussing this issue. First, uh, and they're all repeat guests, um, our co-host, Tina Martini, is unavailable. So uh, we welcome... Uh, Northern Illinois University College of Law Professor Mark Falkoff. He's a constitutional law professor, among other subjects. Professor, welcome back to Legal Faceoff. Thanks, Serge. We've got uh, Andrew DeVoot from Loeb and Loeb. Uh, Andrew is also a uh, past guest on Legal Faceoff and is a former federal prosecutor, Supreme Court law clerk, and currently is uh, the co-chair of the White Collar Criminal Offense Investigations Practice. Hello, uh, Andy. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. And Ashley uh, Alvarez is, I want to get your title right, Legislative Counsel at Chicago City Council, uh, the Committee on Economic, Capital, and Technology Development. Ashley, welcome back to the show. Good to be back. Thank you, Rich. And I think we're awaiting Professor Shapiro, who will be joining us shortly. Carolyn Shapiro, of course, frequent uh, legal face-off guest. Uh, from Chicago Kent College of Law. So she'll be joining us momentarily. But I want to get right into it and talk, of course, first about the, the leak, because to me, that's part uh, it's one of the really um, fascinating parts of this whole story. And Andy, I know you and I talked offline. First of all, we all could agree that this is unprecedented in the history of the Supreme Court. We have never seen a leak of a draft uh, of a Supreme Court decision. There's certainly been rumors and perhaps leaks of who would be the majority or the minority, but never before have we seen an actual draft of a proposed Supreme Court decision leaked before it was published. The Supreme Court, of course, is famous for its secrecy. Um, and in fact, clerks and all staff are sworn to secrecy. So Andy, having been a clerk uh, in your case for former Chief Justice Rehnquist, tell us first about what you have to promise when you get that job. Certainly you take a, an oath of confidentiality, I assume, right? Absolutely. You sign a number of forms, uh, several to specifically, as I recall, you know, deal with that. And just the idea that you, it is strictly enforced, you know, that you um, you're dealing not only with cases that may be uh, heard by the court, but then once they're heard, how they're going to be decided. You're looking at drafts. You're seeing the justices thought processes, depending on the chambers you're in. The justice will come back and share with you. The chief would come back and share with us his notes of what each justice was thinking and why they were voting the way they were voting. So we could have a sense of that in case we had to work on it. So I do think it's, it's, uh, it is unprecedented. It's unbelievable. I was there in 2002, 2003, just a couple of years after the Bush v. Gore case. And you'll remember there was a Vanity Fair article where some of the clerks or some of the chambers, um, I think the language in an article I read, you know, spilled the beans, so to speak, in the process. Uh, and so that so much so that the chief put us all in a conference room shortly after we started, or I guess in, when they came back from summer break and, you know, was polite but stern about our obligations and specifically referenced, you know, uh, the last couple of years and just reminded everyone, you know, of the opportunity they had, but that the responsibility they had to maintain confidentiality. Now, that's really interesting. <laughs> Professor Falco, this is only a draft, right? This is not a final decision. The final decision on this Mississippi case is not expected to be released until uh, June, the very earliest. So explain to our listeners and our viewers what the difference is between a draft of the decision and the actual Supreme Court decision. 
Yeah, well, uh, it, it's what you think. It's, it's just a, a draft in a, a draft of an opinion, so it's not the final opinion. It can be changed. Uh, these things do change. I, I didn't clerk at the Supreme Court, but I clerked for a trial-level federal judge and a, a federal appellate judge, and it's the same kind of thing. It's an early draft, which means it's subject to uh, some rethinking uh, when you're on a panel uh, with other judges or on the Supreme Court. Uh, there's opportunity for some give and take. There's opportunity for some as distasteful as it may seem to people, uh, compromise. Uh, Roe v. Wade itself was a product, uh, perhaps, I, I guess, ironically, of a lot of uh, uh, compromise and, and back and forth and tentative positions being staked out different than what eventually emerged in the opinion. So the, the final uh, the product from the Supreme Court is what we are going to rely on as the law. So this really is just an unconscionable leak. I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating. It's interesting. As a news person, uh, you're interested in it, but this really undermines the deliberative uh, process. And, uh, you know, it, it's unfortunate. And I, I guess I'll, I'll just say one more uh, thing quickly. Um, th there might be an assumption that this was leaked by a, a liberal clerk or a progressive clerk, which may well be uh, the case or a spouse of a clerk, who knows. Um, but uh, I, I wouldn't necessarily jump to that conclusion. Uh, it seems to me that once a, a draft of, of something is leaked, it becomes a little bit more difficult for the author, in this case, uh, Justice uh, Alito, to maybe back away from some of the positions that were initially staked out. I don't know. It's, it's very confusing. It's very unfortunate. Andy, uh, undoubtedly, you were involved in the drafting of these kind of uh, documents. Um, tell us how many drafts typically go into a final decision and is a common for the language. And we're going to talk very specifically about the language of this draft in a moment, because it's really, it's really interesting, but is it common for the language to change from the opening draft until the end? I mean, I know when I draft a brief, you know, sometimes the final product looks way different than the way it looked from the beginning. Um, how is the process at the Supreme court? Sure. I, I think that uh, first of all, it can really, the number of drafts can really depend on the subject matter and the nature of the case. Right. There are some cases at the court that are more straightforward than others. Uh, but in a case like this, there's no question that there will be tweaks to language, uh, you know, uh, uh, passages taking out certain things. No question. But, you know, uh, I also think given the nature of this case and given the way the court works and the clerks interact and that that a lot of communication went into back and forth amongst chambers before even this draft was put out. So. You know, only time will tell when we see what the final draft is like. But I think a lot of communication probably was put into this draft. Um, so there, there will be changes. But, you know, when you think about who might have leaked this or not leaked this, going back to that, you know, um, I would find it shocking that it'd be someone from those five chambers because they feel like they're so close to achieving their goal. It would be shocking to me to seem like they would do anything to upend the apple cart. I just I think. Um, uh, but anyway. So, yes, things can change, but I think a lot of what you see here will be in that opinion. And you can see how it's already a lot of subsections. And I know Carolyn can speak this too, that, um, you know, that's purposely set up. So if people want to join certain specific components, right, some of the history, the start decisis discussion. So, and that's another thing, Rich, that there can be some uh, reorganization or consolidating of sections, depending on how the votes come in. Thanks, Andy. Yes. Professor Shapiro, welcome. Uh, frequent guest on Legal Faceoff. Professor Shapiro, as I, as I mentioned, the uh, Associate Dean for Academic Administration and Strategic Initiatives at Chicago Kent College of Law. She's also the founder and co-director of Chicago Kent's 
Institute on the Supreme Court of the United States. She has argued cases before the Supreme Court. She is a former Solicitor General of the state of Illinois. She's also a former Supreme Court clerk for Justice Breyer, the now retired Justice Breyer. Uh, uh, Professor Tucker. Almost, right. Officially not retired yet. Um, Talk to us about uh, this leak. Um, We've talked about how unprecedented it is. Who do you think did it? I mean, are we have we narrowed it down to what thirty six possible candidates? The uh, the number of clerks that are currently working in the Supreme Court, or do you think it might be beyond that? I mean, is there a conspiracy here that goes beyond perhaps the immediate uh, nexus of of the clerks? Well, you know, first of all, let's be clear: anything that any of us say about who leaked it is pure speculation. <laughs> uh, my speculation, though, is that it was a strategic leak. Uh, and that it was a strategic leak that was done, if not by, at, then at the behest of a justice. Uh, and I see it differently than Andy. I, I see it more the way Mark does, that if it was uh, that uh, it's the conservative, the far right justices, and in particular, Justice Alito and Justice Thomas, who have wanted this result for decades, uh, really don't want any of the other justices who might they want to have join it to get cold feet. And the way they would get cold feet, to be clear, is not to decide to strike down this Mississippi law that's at issue, which outlaws abortion after 15 weeks. That law is going to be upheld no matter what. They would get cold feet by deciding not to go as far as this opinion goes, which is to completely overrule Roe versus Wade. Well, here's my theory, and I also think that it's a strategic link, and Ashley could weigh in on this also, but my theory is that this is a trial balloon. And actually, if you look at the the Trump presidency, um, a lot of it has its roots in that, because Trump would famously float a trial balloon about the most extreme position, and then when he gauged public reaction, we all know that Trump vociferously followed polls in public reaction, he would then take a position that was less than that. So to me, this is strategic in pointing out the most extreme possible position in the most extreme possible language, and then actually coming up with a, with a plan, with a decision that in, when you when you compare it to this extreme position, seems more palatable to the American public. What do you all think of that? Yeah, I mean, I, I actually did think that this might have been um, even campaign related because we are in the the beginning of midterms and we're starting to see that open up. And I wonder if this would maybe be a motivating factor because we are a little concerned about a, a red wave right now. Um, I've seen it all in this in this space. So really, it is speculation. Yeah. I mean, it's either an upset staffer or it's uh, <laughs> an, an election pusher to get out the vote. I- <laughs> Professor Falkov, I mean, it's a little bit of a you know political question, but when you know when when the Mississippi case, when the Texas case first came down, we were all many people were outraged, right? How could they limit abortion to this new standard? Well, when you compare that to this decision, I think a lot of people would be happy if the, those those other cases were the law of the land instead of this Alito decision. Well, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, this if if this opinion or something like it becomes law, then Roe Ro is dead. Um, so anything less than that uh, would, would seem like a victory at this point. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. It, it sounds like we've narrowed it now down to uh, nine justices. I think maybe uh, uh, Justice Breyer in the robing room with a monkey wrench. Uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, it, it's, just so, it's just so hard to know. It'll be fascinating to, to find out what actually happened. 
Yeah. Let's turn to the language because I think the language of this um, at least draft is really fascinating. Um, Professor Shapiro, when I first got the text from you know lots of people last night, my first reaction was this is a hoax because there's no way that any sitting justice would write a decision in this kind of in the, with this kind of verbiage. It's unprecedented in my opinion, and of course you're all better experts than I am. But the direct attack on a Supreme Court precedent, and not just any precedent, but one that is the most well-known precedent, arguably, in American history, in the top five, for a sitting justice to attack it that way, to me, seemed like impossible. It seemed like it was made up. But what do you make, Professor Spear, of the language that at least this early draft has in attacking directly Roe v. Wade and also Casey? I don't, it doesn't surprise me at all. I think, the again, the, the, those cases have been the the prime target of the conservative legal movement for decades. And they think that they are utterly uh, intellectually bankrupt. So the, uh, which I, I do not agree with that to be clear at all. Um, but I think that's the, that's the framework that Justice Alito is operating from. And Justice Alito is not really known for being particularly restrained about his feelings. I mean, he often uh, complains about things that he thinks are somehow, you know, unfair or, and he specifically does that around abortion. His opinion in uh, Whole Women's Health, for example, talk complains about some the procedural aspects of that case at great length. And so, you know, I, this sort of, um, the grievance, the the sort of the grievance of this opinion, or the aggrieved tone of this opinion, really doesn't surprise me at all. And when a justice writes a decision, I mean, this is stuff that we would not would never know, and uses words like in this draft, Roe was egregiously wrong from the start. Its reasoning was exceptionally weak, and the decision has had damaging consequences. When a justice uses words like that, very inflammatory words, are those the actual justice's words or are those the product of, um, you know, the uh, collective decision of the majority or is it more the language of the clerks? I mean, how does that work? I guess it depends on the case. But in this case, and to Justice or to uh, Professor Shapiro's point, perhaps one day, Justice Shapiro, but um, <laughs> Professor Shapiro's point, is this actually the way Alito talks about Roe v. Wade? Right. So I, I, every justice is different and every chambers is different. But I would never, um, in my experience, in the work we did, I did with the chief, those words he would add in his tone. He would decide in the ultimate tone. I might put something in there, but I don't think I would feel um, that I had. I mean, it's not my name on the wall, right? I wasn't appointed by the president. My role there was try to capture what the chief said, that the majority said, or whomever I was writing draft for. And those, in my opinion, are the types of things that that he would personally um you know and i just want to say a couple so to that point let me break it let me break in because that's a really interesting point and then professor Schwer jump into so do you almost i mean if you're if you're clerking for justice toledo certainly you're of a certain political bent right uh certainly you believe in generally pretty conservative values so professor Spiro, andy do you start off with the most conservative strident language and then work backwards from there uh, in other words, trying to, you know, prove your point in the most, um, you know, aggressive language, or do you write the way you think the decision will actually come out? It really depends on the chambers, and it even also depends on the law clerk. You know, when I was clerking, there was 
there were law clerks who tended to write even bench uh, cert memos, which circulates the entire court with a kind of tendentious tone. Uh, that was really, in my view, not appropriate. And uh, and that view is shared by, I think, most of the law clerks. But I would imagine that law clerks who would do that would do the same when they're writing a draft opinion for their own justice. And what, whether that individual justice thinks that that's okay or not, they will certainly communicate that to their to their law clerks. So I, I just don't think it's possible to generalize. Right. Go ahead, Mark. So good. I just want to make one point about that language uh, that you, you quoted, Rich, because you, you read that in the first time through the opinion. That, that occurs relatively early in the opinion. It is pretty striking. Uh, there's, there's no doubt about it. And I have yellow highlighting all, all over that, just like you do, probably. Um, it's interesting, though, that when you, when you get near the, the back end of the opinion and you see the uh, longer discussion of stare decisis, uh, you realize that uh, what, what Alito does here is he lay, lays out five considerations for when stare decisis should or should not be uh, respected or, or how you would analyze stare decisis. And if you go back, you, you'll see that everything that you just said um, in that paragraph, all of that vitriolic language, it is pegged directly to one of those uh, five star decisis considerations. So it's not just vitriol. It's an integral, I would say, an integral part of his analysis, which I think is pretty interesting. And we want to talk about star decisis. Yeah, and I'm sorry. Just one thing on the language, though. There are a couple of things in there that I hope, one, I hope doesn't, I get, I hope gets left in the cutting room floor. And that's the reference to Justice Ginsburg's opinion in Tim's versus Indiana, you know, this is under the idea of Washington versus Glucksburg and when you're going to look about, you know, what it is in, the, in terms of uh, constitutional rights. And, you know, it's one thing when a justice is at the court and they're, you know, they love to quote back to each other. Well, you said this in that case. Right. And when a justice is, you know, on the court and alive. But I think my personal opinion to have that language about her exploration of the Eighth Amendment right is is borderline disrespectful. And I, I think even Justice Scalia, if he were on the court and, the, you know, for his colleague, if she were no longer on the court and she had passed, I really think that's a bridge too far. I also, the language in here, the examples, the start decisis discussion is interesting, but to use the examples that they, he uses, the nature of the court's error to use Plessy. And then when you get into the discussion about uh, important decisions have overruled prior precedents, to use Brown versus Board, to use decisions about women's rights. I just think that's a poke in the eye, an unnecessary poke in the eye to a lot of people in an already controversial opinion. And I understand that it probably feels really good in chambers and sounds clever, but man, it just seems like an unnecessary poke in the eye in this discussion. That's I just think that's going to stay. I, I would bet a lot of money that part stays. It was the, the same, same points were made during oral argument, too. Exactly the same points. Let's jump into that because stare decisis is such an interesting part of this discussion. It seems like um, you know, that is something that's fungible, right? That every justice who has signed on seemingly to this draft, we don't know what the final decision is going to be, but the five justices who are seemingly in the majority in their confirmation hearings, each of them were asked about Roe v. Wade and other super precedents, for lack of a better term. And to a person, they all gave a form of the same answer, that there are some Supreme Court decisions that are precedent upon precedent. And while they would not all commit to not overturning these cases, they all committed to the idea that the more cases are relied upon for the for a long period of time, they become almost untouchable. Yet here we see that Justice Alito is saying on behalf of the majority, unquestionably, that that doesn't matter. We can overturn precedent. So where does that leave the concept, Professor Falkup, of, of, of stare decisis? How are we supposed to rely 
as a society on any decisions that the highest court in the land makes. Well, I mean, this is a fascinating discussion to have here. It really is. Uh, well, for, first of all, the the um, the super precedent that they're talking about is is Casey rather than Roe, because Casey was a case right. in which you had the the, the three um, concurring uh, justices basically say, "Well, stare decisis is important, so we're going to leave Roe uh, where it is." But um, you know. Exactly. What is stare decisis? I mean, this is a question for philosophers and law professors and then, you know, justices uh, working it out. I, I actually I think it's very interesting to have an opinion where you have the justices try to work out what are the meets and bounds of stare decisis. It's always going to be contested. It's, it's a fascinating intellectual exercise. It's incredibly frustrating for those of us who believe in a woman's right to choose and, and so forth to see it played out in this manner uh, uh, here. I don't find it a particularly, frankly, uh, a compelling uh, discussion. I know most people will not have read you know, this draft decision uh, at this point, but uh, we, we've got five points that are laid out by uh, Justice Alito. And, you know, frankly, none of them are uh, uh, knocked down, dead bang uh, winner. I mean, they, they simply uh, show that, uh, you know, it's, it's a, this is a, a contested kind of uh, issue. So I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm just not uh, I, I, I don't I don't buy it entirely. I, I'm fascinated that it's there, but I, I can't I can't buy it. Professor yeah. Spirit, Asteri- yeah, go ahead. Well, I, I think part of what happened at the confirmation hearings, it's not just that the nominees talked about Roe and Casey as precedent, or in the case of Casey, precedent on precedent. Uh, they also talked about the way they judge as a kind of neutral, uh, kind logically, uh, logical deduction that if that there's a right answer and if they just gaze long enough at the materials, that right answer will emerge. And they, that that idea is completely wrong when it comes to the work of the Supreme Court. And this opinion illustrates exactly why. Everything that Justice Alito says in this opinion is contest, contested. It is not logically deducible that stare decisis in this case shouldn't hold. That's a matter of discretion and ideology. And so to my mind, it's the combination of those two things that has been that's been most uh, problematic at confirmation hearings. This claim that yes, of course it's precedent. Well yeah, but that doesn't tell us what you're going to do with it. And then alongside that, this claim that I just apply the law, I don't make the law, which is simply a poor description of what happens at the Supreme Court at best. All right. I want to talk about some practical impacts of this decision, if, if it is a decision. Ashley, let's get you in on, on this uh, uh, issue because uh, you're involved in some of the practical effects of this. I know that you just recently drafted a resolution for the City Council of Chicago uh, in an attempt to protect the rights of women to terminate their pregnancy. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, I think we're very fortunate to be in Illinois in a state that regardless of what holding is, you know, and the outcome may be, we are protected. This is written into our Illinois state constitution. And we don't have to worry about that. But I think we also need to look at what funding mechanisms we can start reaching out to and what support systems look like so that other nearby states, because every state around us is not going to have those protections if they overturn Roe v. Wade. I mean, if that if that happens, if that this case ends up falling in that direction, we need to look at how we're going to start protecting everybody that's going to start coming in. And so I think it's really important right now as we're at a local level, because every form of government is really impactful, especially a local level, since we, we 
seem to have a lot of federal insecurity, um, to make sure that we are getting those support systems in place and that we are in opposition and really holding up our elected officials that have, you know, promised to be in support of our unenumerated rights. Well, it's interesting. Talk about the language to that point. Talk about the language earlier. In some ways, the way Alita wrote, wrote this draft, if he did write it, if he, you know, if this is a draft which we think it's been confirmed already. Um, it's interesting that this might actually turn out to have a motivating factor for Democrats and for liberals, because it's not just a case where, you know, abortion rights are being chipped away slowly. This is a full-throated vocal repudiation of Roe v. Wade, which ironically, may turn out to have a motivating impact on voters to come out and vote for Democrats in the upcoming congressional elections, which may serve to uh, generate a federal law protecting a woman's right to choose. We already heard from President Biden earlier today calling for that. We've heard from most congressional leaders already. So, Ashley, what, what about that? Do you think that if the leaker, if the breacher was, in fact, a... Uh, right-wing clerk trying to pressure the five justices into this decision, perhaps it will have the opposite effect long-term. I mean, this is historically um, what we've seen when the, like when the decision came out about the news with Hillary Clinton and we found out that she was not going to be our first woman president, we saw the women's march come out in numbers that we've never seen before. And that's when our blue wave came. So I think that, yeah, these things definitely play a really big factor and impact on it. Um, still not sure like what, who the leaker was, but I do think that this will ultimately uh, say a lot about what comes next. And, and we have the ability right now. I think I really liked what somebody had said, um, and I, I'm forgetting her name, but she had said that we don't even need to wait for elections. Everybody who is writing letters and emails about fundraising right now, stop and codify this because we can. We have the opportunity for people that are not in office or that are in office and have that power to do so. And we don't need to wait for the Supreme Court to step in. And I think that's also something important to keep in mind when we're holding our elected officials accountable. Andy, one thing we can all agree on that uh, Justice Alito wrote in this draft is that the word abortion is not written in the Constitution. That's unequivocal. Uh, many in the wake of this news in the last you know, 20 or so hours have speculated that if the Supreme Court could overturn Roe and Casey, what's next? Uh, can they eliminate other rights that are under the umbrella or penumbra of the right of privacy, like the right to interracial marriage, the right to same-sex marriage, etc.? Uh, now, is that just sort of um, people getting a little ahead of themselves, or do you think there's a real risk to other rights that have been accepted over the last few decades? I mean, it's a lawyer's answer, but we'll have to see. It is interesting if you, when you read it um, it's three or four times, if, I think if you count Mark with the highlighter like you, where they try, it seems like he tries to really say, but this is different because of fetal life, because if you, there's three or four, I think at least instances where he tries to reference that this is different than marriage. This is different, even though there's that, you know, suggesting that the argument is going to lead to legalization of uh, drug use and, and prostitution in another section. But I, I think they're trying to uh, send the message that it's not going to lead to that, that this is very specific because of, you know, because we're talking about life. Professor Falkoff, <laughs> Professor Vera, what do you think of that? Do you think other rights, uh, if... This does, in fact, overturn Casey and Roe to the degree that this draft is written. 
what's next? What's in the future for rights uh, rights that we all enjoy right now? Well, I, I'll just say quickly, I mean, I, I agree with Andy that uh, Alito went to pains in this draft to try to distinguish the abortion context from other contexts like, um, well, I mean, interracial marriage is in there. There's a whole list of, uh, uh, of uh, holdings in there where the Supreme Court has recognized rights that cannot, that the language cannot be found in the Constitution, uh, penumbras and, and the due process clause and, and, and so forth. Um, uh, so there, there's an attempt to distinguish that, but I don't I don't find it uh, very uh, convincing. It's not robust at all. I mean, it, it's little more than simply a statement. Well, this is different. This is, this is life. Uh, I would be particularly concerned about um, Obergefell and uh, Windsor and, you know, the, the gay marriage uh, kinds of uh, cases. I, I think that's definitely ripe for revisiting. Of course, if, if you take a, a kind of a, a political realist view of uh, what the court does, it seems much less likely at this point in time that they would roll back those particular uh, holdings uh, in contrast to abortion, which you know has, been, has fueled uh, a movement for a, a long time. But I, I think as a logical matter, those are the kinds of things I'd be very concerned about. And I agree with that and would add uh, certain forms of contraception. Uh, there's, you know, say IUDs, uh, certain forms of the pill that prevent implantation. If the, uh, it's really hard for me to see why a state, if this became the, if this opinion becomes the law of the land, it's hard for me to see why a state wouldn't be able to outlaw those forms of contraception as well. Ashley, what's the early uh, response you're getting from uh City of Chicago, older people. We heard from the governor uh, very early. Um, I imagine at this point, Lori Lightfoot has released a statement. I haven't seen one, but I imagine that uh, the elder person that you work for, uh, Gilbert Vegas, uh, is very much against this decision, as are the majority of the city council. Yeah, no, I, I think everyone's really been, you know, joining to co-sponsor the resolution that we've introduced. Um, I think everyone's trying to find different avenues. I also think everyone didn't know what to kind of do. And not everybody was staying up all night yesterday reading uh, the opinion, like I'm sure all we were. So uh, I think you're trying to find a bearing still a little bit. It's, it's a very stark reality, especially for women who have weakened power as it is. So we're, we're really disempowered in this moment. It's, it's, it, it is an uncomfortable feeling. Yeah, I mean, that's for sure. You know, uh, one person, um, one analyst said it very aptly today that uh, women this morning are waking up for the first time in 50 years with less rights than they did uh, a day ago uh, and less, you know, less rights than uh, their predecessors have. They got to tell their daughters that they will have less rights than they've enjoyed over the last 50 or so years, which is really, to your point, hard to get your head around uh, at this point. But I want to end off with you know, a little insight into the Supreme Court, as I always try to do when I get, I have the privilege of having former Supreme Court clerks on our on our program. Um, you know, at the end of the day, you know, the nine justices on the Supreme Court, when we all hold them in such high regard, appropriately so, um, I've always been fascinated with the whole mystique of, of the nine. At the end of the day, they are just men and women, right, who have got to go home and they've got to answer to people. And they, you know, undoubtedly, while they try to avoid social media, I'm sure they're not um, totally immune to it. And they've got children and grandchildren. What's the pressure there? I mean, are they so above it all, um, Andy and, and Professor Piro, that they're really not truly affected by this outswell of public outrage that we've seen for the most part. Now, certainly among a 
large part of the population, this decision will be celebrated, right? So perhaps, you know, that's the answer. But as just people, I know you got to know during your course of work there, you got to know each of the individuals pretty well. How are they affected by outside forces? I mean, how, if this decision really comes down the way it's drafted and there is outrage by a large uh, segment of the population, how will Justice Alito deal with that? Or will he be unaffected by it? I mean, what will he tell his grandchildren who are, you know, seeing all sorts of social media outrage about it? What are your thoughts on that, Andy, first? Sure. I mean, for me, I think about the chief justice. That's the one I think about. You know, there's been 46 presidents in this country, 17 chief justices in 1789. And when you become chief justice, your role is different. It is different. You saw it with Rehnquist, or Chief Justice Rehnquist, if you look at opinions, and you are the shepherd of that flock and you're the defender of that institution. And it is bigger than yourself or your personal opinions, in my opinion. And I think about him both with the leak and this opinion. And I think it's got to be gut wrenching. I think there's no other way to put it. Uh, he clerked for a chief himself. You know, we can disagree or agree with his ideology or his views or whatever, but he's still, you know, he is the chief justice, the leader of this institution. That's what I've been thinking about the last since we heard about this, just both these points, both the draft opinion, what it may do, and the leak itself. I just think for him, this has to be absolutely gut wrenching. Yeah, well, I, I certainly agree with that. And, and I don't think Justice Alito is likely to be much affected at all by what is being said about him. First of all, there's plenty of media out there and social media that is going to be supportive of this. And my suspicion is that that's to the extent he reads any of it, that's what he's exposed to. To the extent he's exposed to the critical stuff, I think he's going to be proud of himself for standing up to the political pressure of the hegemonic left. We'll give the last word of Professor Falkoff to uh, those points. What do you think? I mean, we, we already saw the statement from Chief Justice Roberts earlier today in which he expresses outrage at this breach of security and ordered the, um, the uh, not the marshal, but um, is it the marshal? Marshal, perhaps, to uh, investigate it. Um, but, you know, uh, he's concerned with his legacy. We have heard from him before, for example, when President Trump um, you know, talked about there being uh, Obama justices. We heard the chief justice come out um, loudly against that. What do you think his reaction is today beyond what we've already read from his statement? Well, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think his statement made it pretty clear. I mean, um, it's outrageous. I mean, the chief justice is an institutionalist and uh, I mean, he spent a, a lot of time protecting the integrity of the court. Yeah, I mean, that this is this undermines it. And then, you know, the, then there's the, it's going to be interesting to see where he comes out on the uh, opinion and on the stare decisis kinds of issues. And that that's probably more important than the leak itself. I mean, the leak is egregious and everyone recognizes that. Um, what, what does it mean to sign on to or not on to or onto part of the decision that ultimately gets issued? I think that's going to be really, a really interesting question. Professor Mark Falkoff, Andy DeVote, Ashley Alvarez, Professor Carolyn Shapiro, thank you all very much for joining us on this really interesting day. We'll be sure to keep following this issue on Legal Faceoff. We'll be taping our actual, uh, our next full podcast this Friday. We'll be dealing with this in, in more detail and uh, appreciate all of your insight and welcome you back to Legal Faceoff in the future. Thanks for having us. Thanks, everyone. Take care.